you to learn what these networks are trying to do to you. It's not the, the, it's not really a source of news about your friends. It's not what your friends are saying. It's it's what the network wants to see, and that what the algorithm really wants you to see, mm-hmm. and that. Sorry, Summer from uh, Tweets uh, Tweets Map. Um, great to have you on. Um, yeah, as we were talking about before, uh, before we jumped in, um, this is the third podcast of the day, and I'm looking forward to jumping in right in with you. Um, you have a, you're building an analytic system that exists on top of social media, right? That gives people feedback on, uh, on, uh, on what their, you know, messaging is about, but also how to, uh, you know, the best times or the best places to tweet or send a message out. So this is mostly um, built on top of Twitter. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So um, it's it's mostly built on Twitter. We do support uh, LinkedIn and Instagram only for publishing. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. LinkedIn and Facebook only for publishing. But we're currently working on adding other analytics for other social networks uh, mm-hmm. to 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 be more comprehensive. But it's the the biggest advantage we have is is with our ad, uh, advanced Twitter analytics. Definitely. So let's talk about that. Um, what is what is uh, the value in having some analytics from Twitter? Like, what can you learn from there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, map helps businesses build a personalized relationship with their social media audience. So, um, and usually, uh, uh, gen- generally, social media analytics is very basic and very bland. So they tell you how many likes you get, how many shares you get, and things like that. Um, what we do is a little bit different. We give you a depth that helps you build a personal relationship. So you, you'd be able to understand what your audience likes to talk about, when do they go online, and what is the right message you, you, that helps you get higher engagement with them and build a more personalized relationship if you really understand who your target audience is. Mm-hmm. So that basically results in higher conversions, higher engagement with your audience, and then better brand recognition. Cool. So, I mean, social media has been around for like a decade or two now, right? Most platforms, there's been a variety of services built around them. Uh, why the need to build uh, an analytics engine on top of Twitter? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, uh, um, like, historically, uh, Twitter's map for me was not really a company. It started as a fun project, like probably most mm-hmm. <laughs> most founders do. Yeah. Uh, so I started, I was working on a different startup. Um, and uh, basically, I just thought, oh, I, I like to tinker and build uh, mobile apps and things like that, not just for business, but for fun as well. So I built something. I saw someone was trying to build some uh, location of Twitter followers. I thought, oh, this is really a very poorly done. I could do something better. So I built something uh, with a combination of AI because um, Twitter is, is different. Unlike Facebook, when you know, when you go on Facebook, you you go and tell Facebook, um, you know, I'm a 30-year-old male who lives in Toronto who works in this field. Uh, Twitter, on the other hand, is uh, different. You don't, it doesn't ask you for these things. You just go and and put a bio by yourself and maybe you put a location. Um, So that's what required really more advanced uh, deciphering of what people mean when they say on, on, on Twitter itself. So that's when I went and I built some algorithm that uses AI to decipher what people really mean, and then uh, create a map that um, uh, th- that maps out your Twitter followers, and that was a big hit back in 2011. Uh, everyone loved it, and it was like a 
it had like a wild ride. It was all over the internet. And, mm. um, but for me, it wasn't a company. It was just a fun project that I built yeah. in the basement. Um, so um, fast forward a few years down the road, I, after many years of, of having that um, app available for everyone to use, excuse me, um, um, it, I got a lot of contact by larger brands trying to do more than what the tool was, was giving them. And then since there is also not, not that many available tools out there to give you more advanced analytics. So at some point after you know, a few years of that, I decided you know, I need to actually spend the effort and make it a business mm -hmm. and then build something that all these businesses uh, to give them what they're asking for. That's interesting. I like that. So you started as a personal project and it took a life of its own and uh, yeah. you actually built an organic audience. I mean, a uh, user base who wanted more from it and yes. you know, you took it into a business. I mean, that's, a, that's the ideal for any kind of like founder, right? You build something um, to solve a personal problem and it kind of spirals into other people's problems to solve other people's problems. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that, and that's the most exciting thing about like, you know, when you, when you're a founder or even a tinker who just likes to build things is to see so many people use your, you know, what you're building and then get the satisfaction is like, oh, I actually built something that's used by so many people. Mm -hmm. um, so initially, you know, like, I mean, initially I thought I, I have a whole bunch of other apps that are also popular, but I just never found a, a you know, a business case for them. But that one really, um, the, the larger brand requesting specific solutions to problems they have really has triggered uh, the need for me to think, okay, yeah, this actually does scale to be a business that helps other other businesses. Um, mm. so, so yeah, that's what, what really got it off the, off the ground. No, absolutely. Um, my co-founder, Henry, um, he, he, he talked to me about this. It's like the difference between uh, innovation and invention. Uh, and even tinkers and all the other aspects, right? So innovation happens when you take an invention and you commercialize it. So invention yeah. plus commercialization, the development of IP, but commercialize. So, um, you know, uh, people who pay for it to actually, uh, the invention actually, the IP goes and solve the real problems and enough to pay for it. You know, we put that together, that's what the formula is to get in an, in an innovation, something that changes um, the way people do things. Yeah, and, that's a great definition for it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's it. and the main difference between that and like tinkerers, you know, people who like tinker, like you think about people in the, like, you know, uh, back in the day in their basement garages, just like building things for, for fun, improving on things is that if they don't commercialize, it doesn't become an, an, an innovation. It doesn't change the way we do things, right? Yeah. Innovation happens in three things, product, service, or um, a process. Um, with yours, you know, what do you see this, uh, what are the main problems that you're solving here? Yeah, so I mean, there is a lot of problems that our businesses usually face, which is, uh, you know, I mean, what what do people mean when they say certain things on social media? Um, I mean, a, a location was was an example I give. So for some people say, I, I you know, I live in the big or I live in the Big Apple, or they mention the Big Apple, but are they really talking about New York City, or are they talking, you know, the Big Apple restaurant on the 401, right? I mean. It, it could it could have different meaning or they could say I live in the six which is like you know that's a very Toronto lingo right you need to understand yeah. what that means mm -hmm. to say okay the six that means it's, it's from Toronto or it could say you know or it could be more complicated examples it could be I live in London but is that London Ontario or London UK so there is more complicated examples so there is all these things that we say and do on social media would have different meanings mm -hmm. and um, 
And then for a business, it needs to actually get with higher certainty and understanding of that data, what it really means. Um, so location is, for example, a good example. It could be another example could be, you know, what time of the day people go online, what time of the day your audience goes online. Um, so that's another problem usually businesses face, especially when they're publishing on social media, because they want to actually publish something when their audience is active. Mm -hmm. um, but also, um, yeah, but it's, it's not just all your audience has to be online at a certain time. So if you're an international brand, you might have audience in Australia that goes online at a different time. And if you continuously focus on your global audience, you might be missing a significant segment of your audience that goes in line at a different time of the day. So that way, maybe you need to target them and you need to target them also with the right message. So mm. things that might be uh, engaging North America might not be engaging in Australia. So you need to actually pick the right messages for the right audience and get higher engagement with that specific audience. So that that's another example. Um, another. Another thing that would be useful for a brand is how do they, um, you know, find a really a specific segment that you do want to reach out to. For example, um, I'm a business. I'm having a conference. Well, maybe not in COVID time. Maybe when COVID is over, mm -hmm. having a conference in San Francisco, and I want to reach out to let's say CEOs or I don't know software developers who are in our audience in San Francisco and tell them that there's a conference that is happening in San Francisco so they know about it and come over and, and meet us. So that's where also our tool comes in handy uh, is we actually narrow it down. We tell you if you, we basically you just ask us questions. What do you need to do? You need to find people who are CEOs in San Francisco and then we tell you here are the people now re reach out to them with a message. So it solves, you know, uh, um, I always say it's we don't solve one problem. We answer questions. What are the business? Usually a marketer has a lot of questions and they need to get an answer for them and we help them answer those questions. So we might not solve everything and we might not um, be the tool that that you will use everything, you know, every different segment of our of our service. But we we have we try to answer basically most of the questions that you have. Yeah. I mean, that seems interesting, like, you know, um, using data to build analytics out of it to answer a particular, uh, you know, a subset of questions that businesses might have about their audiences, about their clients, about people who are uh, maybe following them online. Um, you know, I personally got really into the idea of like sentiment analysis, you know, trying to figure out how people feel about certain things. And, and Twitter was one of the first um, platforms to allow for this, right? Because there's so much quality of information you can get. So I remember like, even way back, like 2013, 2014, people were pulling, you know, a large data sets of uh, t uh, tweets out and they were creating like sentiment analysis, how certain people feel throughout the day or about what they tweet and like trying to pull these information maps out, right? And yeah. just like you make a heat map of like, you know, where people are during a certain time, you can kind of map out how, you know, certain subsets of population feel during the time, right? And I always thought that was like mystical. That's, all, that's fucking magic, right? Like, like you know, yeah. imagine being able to like, know that. that 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 just seemed like so um to me at that time especially i'm like yeah this this doesn't make any sense like how how accurate could it be like how do you take just like a few words like a limited tweet and like be able to pull how people feel out of that right um you know do you have any thoughts on that like do you have any yeah uh, no absolutely uh so i mean we do have sentiment analysis and i'll confess our sentiment analysis is not really uh a uh, in-house built, so we out we use off-the-shelf packages mostly because 
that thing has become more bread and butter kind mm. of thing. It's not, there is nothing really special about it. Um, so, um, I mean, it is not, it's not highly accurate uh, when it comes to sentiment analysis, mostly because, you know, sometimes there are certain things that get lost in translation. Like you could, you could have a sarcastic tone when you actually just, you know, without saying you're sarcastic. So you need to know who the person is saying it. So there's all these things, there's context that is always missing when you just parse words. Uh, and unfortunately, um, that's that's one of the downside in social media analytics is is that a lot of the times there's context is missing. So it's not going to be 100% accurate, but it will be uh, highly accurate, I would say, to give you, you know, if you look at it from the grand scheme of things, not everyone is sarcastic. There's only very few people who are usually sarcastic when they say certain things. So it will be more than 90% accurate. So that really helps you make a judgment call about, you know, the general sentiment of a certain topic. But it's not really going to, if you drill down to the individual piece of, of, of content to the tweet itself, it would not be very accurate. Hmm. So now taking a step back. So when we talk about our own algorithm, we try to make them higher than usual accurate. And that's why I said, like, for example, when people say I, I live in the Big Apple, it is important to know when that person says they live in the Big Apple, if they're actually in the United States or it's just, you know, or maybe they just like to say I live in the Big Apple when they don't live in the, in the United <laughs> States. So there is, so that's where our AI comes into play. We're actually try to understand the context ab around what people say um, and then try to pull that information and then make it uh, and try to to judge the relevancy of that context and see is that what you said? Um, what what is the confidence? What is our confidence in determining, uh, you know, whether that person is you know gender male or female or whether that person is uh, living that location or that person works in IT? Uh, we try to uh, have a certain level of confidence and then show our end users, the businesses, um, um, that stats. And then we use it in two different ways. So one way would be, for example, if you're trying to get a global statistics about social media, about your own account, your audience, or, or a specific topic and trying to measure, uh, we give you the stats even when we don't have a very high confidence because basically at that point, you're only interested in measuring, gauging um, what's happening or getting the, the high level information, demographic, be it, or sentiment. But when you go and try to narrow down, so like I want to reach out to CEOs who live in, in California, um, that information, we actually, we only show you that piece of information when we have really high confidence in our accuracy of our algorithms. So then because because you're going to go one-on-one -on -one and actually talk to the people, you don't want to end up talking to someone who is really not the matching what your criteria you're looking for. So there's sort of two levels of ways how we present the data and we process it, which reflects the accuracy of the data, like you were saying earlier, because sentiment, you know, it's it's not always like, you know, some things could be lost in the translation. Um, so the, the confidence level will determine how you're engaging with that with that audience. Yeah. Um, so at what point does this level of data and this level of analytics become scary? Right. At what point does it become intrusive into, uh, you know, our, I guess, I guess into our personal security? Yeah. I mean, that's a very good question. Um, so one of the things that we're really careful about is not to mix private data with public data. Mm. So in terms of 
Twitter, the vast majority of the Twitter data is public. So, you know, you if you say something on Twitter, you know, people will find it. Um, so that's the 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 important element is that only only a small number of accounts are private on, on Twitter, but we make sure that that data is not really crosses the public domain or so people so it's not searchable. If that account is private or tweets something that is private, it is private. People cannot find it outside of, of that domain. Mm -hmm. uh, so we only limit our experiences to public, and then and then the other the other piece of information is that you know other networks um, say um, Facebook or um, Instagram and LinkedIn they also have separation of what's private and what's public. So we also don't merge those. We don't merge your pe personalities across. So if you say something on Twitter. We don't. We're not gonna say, oh, but this person is this person on Facebook, and they also said that. So that mm. also because they're, even though there are silos, but we try to to keep the silos separated. So that way you you don't crisscross. You know, if you say something on Twitter and you are on Twitter, I mean that's that's a fair game. People can see what you're saying on Twitter. You're doing it publicly, but we don't cross the per you know the networks across. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. Um, well, like, uh, I really wanted to discuss with you the, something that's recent, very recent in the news. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with Parler, the, yes, the conservative am, yes. app? Um, yes. So Parler uh, made news, I think, yesterday. Um, they're, you know, they are, of course, um, because of their their audience base and what happened on, uh, in the U.S. Uh, capital, um, they got pulled out of the App Store and the, uh, the, um, the App Store and uh, the Play Store. Google and, uh, and Apple. And then Amazon chimed in and the, the partners hosted on Amazon. And for those who don't know, it's a social media app aimed at a, con a conservative uh, right-wing audience base. And the, and uh, when Amazon was about to pull it out, um, there's a group called um, um, the, the Internet Archive. They're, they're really yeah. good at archiving the internet, especially parts of it that are going to be deleted or go obsolete. Uh, they were really uh, well known for uh, pulling the information out of GeoCities and preserving yeah. GeoCities when it was being deleted yeah. by Yahoo. Uh, them, but also a variety of other groups went into Parler and started like pulling data out of it to, in order to pre preserve it, but also to capture it. And to their surprise, there's very little security protections invo <laughs> involved in Parler. Yeah. One of the main things they Parler did was each post was sourced by number, so it was very easy just by URL to like search right. uh, search posts. Yeah. So. Um, even just from that aspect, people are able to pull millions, uh, data dump millions of posts out of Parler. Um, but more than that, they were able to pull out uh, usernames, user information, um, metadata about where the posts were posted, like geographically where the posts came from, what phones they came out of. They were pull out, pull out tons of information. And now the app is uh, as dead. There's this huge uh, data pool now available. Yeah. And, uh, and these data people uh, are like you know, cross-sourcing it and, and going nice. through it all. And um, so one of the main interests is, uh, is, uh, is one, you know, the lack of security in an app like that is terrible. But yeah. two, the data behind this, like for someone who's like really into analytics and understanding people, this gives like a really good lens into a very, a very uh, niche subset of people. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you yourself, uh, you know, run across this data or have you heard, heard so, much about this? Yeah. So I have heard about all, all these things. Uh, Unfortunately, um, I don't. We, we don't really get involved into that um, area. So I mean, Parler is similar. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gab. So Gab was before Parler, sort of similar, but Gab didn't really take off and had very similar 
problems to what par I mean, what Parler is facing now is probably exactly the same thing what happened to Gab. They were also having hate speech. They're also having violent threats. And then um, they will pulled out from the platforms. And I believe they were also on Amazon and Amazon kicked them out. And then they moved on to another host and that host also kicked them out. So it's, it's a similar story. Um, we try to stay away from it mostly because uh, monetizing negativity was never really a thing that we want to do. Um, and I mean, even now, even with us on Twitter, uh, sometimes we we just publish a story like, you know, Twitter suspended this account or Twitter did that that account. And you would see the backlash with with our own fo followers. We have a significant followers on Twitter for 370,000 followers. So even with, with those stories, which are general mainstream, we get a lot of backlash from people, you know, pro and con, and it's it's usually. So we try to stay out of the political sphere, really, and we try to focus on the business side of social media, mm. because I think that it has a more lasting impact than uh, politics. Politics, you know, comes and goes, and then, you know, one, one, you know, one day, four years, some guy was president, and now he's no longer president anymore. Mm. So, so it shifts, and then if you end up on one side or the other, and then there's backlashes, and there is PR nightmares, etc. So that's that's my view on on why we're not really touching that data. I I could imagine if I was like a security researcher, or you know, or uh, or into like law enforcement, that data would be very interesting just from from that aspect alone. And I know that there's few there's a um, a UFT researcher who is really identifying uh, some of the rioters that entered the Capitol Hill by mm -hmm. using that data. And he's by using photos and information and from, you know, pulled from all over the place to actually identify. And he's managed to identify quite a few people already. Um, so that's in terms of, of the data. Now, the, the terms of <laughs> in terms of security, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I would say the vast majority of software developers these days don't care about security. Um, that's one of the challenges. Like I've seen banking apps uh, that, really have terrible security um even banking websites i think all the major canadian uh, banks don't have really good security for online banking and i've even contacted mm. like i found security holes and contacted their uh ctos at one point the cto said oh well we have um you know their response is well the worst thing that happens if somebody hacks into your account we guarantee that we will give you your money back or something but I'm like, but that's not really, <laughs> that shouldn't be the default that you have a, a money back guarantee if you're hacked. It should be, you should have a secure system first. And then they said, well, we have an audit. We have a third company that does audit to our software and the audit mm -hmm. is in the past. Uh, but I'm like, well, you know, we do social media analytics and our service is more secure than your bank. And then that's, that's not, <laughs> that is not really a secure thing. I mean, what what is the worst thing that can happen when somebody hacks a social media analytics company, right? I mean, they're not they're not gonna um, get you know your money or anything. It's it's not it's not like we're a target or anything. But our security, we we spend a lot of effort into our security than a bank. I think that's become scary. So that that brings up your point is that these apps, a lot of them, a lot of the times they rush into building them without having someone who is senior with with a security knowledge or with with background. You know, I just maybe someone who just graduated from school and started coding and they start coding and they build something and it's nice and fun, but nobody thought about security. And then all of a sudden it would be like, you know, the LinkedIn story where they, they have all the passwords stored in plain text, not even encrypted. 
not even hashed. So I mean that's that's unfortunate in our in today's world, but it, it's it's more common that than than what you think. Absolutely, and especially as uh, you know, development becomes more more open and uh, more people are getting into it. Like there's a lot of like um, best practices that are lost. Yeah. Uh, like my, me, I myself, I'm taking a lot of like uh, courses right now online to like learn programming. But I can yeah. imagine, I'm like, I'm not gonna build if I build something out commercially. Like, you know, there's a lot of like best practices that I might miss out because I'm just learning the yeah. overall things of not a de- depth. Luckily yeah. for me, you know, I have a team I can rely on. I have you know sources that I can double check, and I'm taking the effort um, to, to to go into that. But a lot of people are just launching things without doing the due diligence, and that's I think that's that's scary in itself. But, you know, flipping back to social media and some of the changes we're seeing, right? Going back to social media as an industry, you know, now in the second decade almost, basically in the second decade and uh, moving to the third, you know, it's kind of evolving. You know, the last uh, 10 years is we've seen the emergence of these giant uh, networks, right? Unlike we've seen anything before, mostly, you know, because of uh, mobile phones, right? 1.6 million devices. Uh, uh, 1.6 billion devices, uh, sorry, 1.6 billion people connected through mobile devices. Yeah. Uh, I think 5 billion devices um, um, currently in the market. And uh, uh, it allows for a large uh, pool of people who can just, you know, get, you know, uh, get into network together. But we're seeing a kind of division, right? So not one within the large platforms, the algorithms are dividing people into, you know, like-minded groups, right? It's one of the main reasons we're seeing the, extre- the extremist like kind of, kind of absurdance right now is that the social media followers, like, you know, whatever you believe, you get to tend to match with other people who believe the same thing. And, and these pools of like like-mindedness are kind of developing, right? Some of them are beneficial uh, and it puts you in a group of people, people that are in the same kind of like mind, like mindset or, or trajectory as you, but other, other times it can be negative where it can be like, it can put you with people who believe in the same kind of negative thoughts or ideas as you and mm-hmm. and, so, and and suddenly you become like, you know, uh, a packeted together as, as a community. And we're seeing like, you know, yeah, the main main uh, platforms still exist, but small niche categories. Parler is one of the extreme examples of this, but there's other, uh, other ones like, you know, there's like sales professional uh, communities that are developing. There are apps yeah. that are built built for like certain professionals or certain people with certain skills or certain level of communities. Like smaller niche communities are mm-hmm. developing where it's focused on a very small but very tight wine community, right? We're seeing yeah. social networks like that kind of develop uh, because people are now getting used to it, right? I think just two, even like two, three years ago, the average person had was on about six different social networks. Now it's become more, right? You have the main networks you're on. Each network, you have a personality that you show that's a little different. Your Instagram yeah. personality is different than your Twitter one. That's different from your LinkedIn one. People are like becoming multifaceted, you know, different sides of themselves. It's like you would show a different personality at work versus at home or versus, you know, when you're in your dating life, right? You have these different kind of like parts of yourself that you show differently. Uh, people have got to become adept at doing that online, right? What I'm interested in is like, what is what is human behavior morph into? Right to, in, to the virtual sphere. Like, what are you seeing, especially being an analytics based firm? Um, you see any patterns? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I think I think what you described is is very accurate, and and uh, and maybe for us here in North America, we haven't really seen it um, until recently. We haven't seen it like materialize in such a way. Uh, I remember uh, back in in the early you know 2011 2012, there was the Arabic uh, the Arab Spring. Um, and that really started on social media. 
um, and and that was um, you know at, at first it was a it was a, a positive event that there was all these people rising against dictatorships and and organizing etc. But at the same time there was negative groups so all these terror groups took seized on the opportunity and used the same tactics the same ideas and started growing um, um, you know these networks these vast networks on social media. Uh, and be it uh, some of it was on Facebook, but I think the majority of it was on on Twitter, mostly because it was public, and that really spread like wildfire. And at the time, I think all these social media companies didn't know what to make of it. They just thought, oh, there's all these users that are using it and not really paying attention. But until the extreme violence that came of it, and and you know, and and nothing would happen here in North America compared to any of the violence that happened in the Middle East. Uh, with, with these extremist group um, and and they really used social na- social media to for a really bad cause and at that point they started to uh, social media I think uh, Twitter and Facebook took them a few years before they realized oh what have we created here we created a mm. monster so they started cranking cracking down on these uh, extremist group and their network but it was a game of guacamole like they kept shutting things down and then they show up in another place and then those groups learned how to adapt to go around all these uh, crackdowns. Um, but eventually I think they got it right. They started to build more algorithms and unfortunately like we normal people started to get impacted by these algorithms. A lot of us, you know, you probably have it with your own social media. Sometimes you get locked out of your account and they tell you, oh, you need to verify or do something. Or sometimes they suspend you for a few days because they think you're doing some suspicious behavior. But that's not really a person doing that. It's an algorithm trying to combat all those extremist groups that are doing all these actions on social media. So, um, yeah, so then once once that happened, those extremist groups splintered into different plat- platforms and then they went into other social networks that are not really mainstream networks that we use today. And some of them went into, you know, like Telegram, which is now making a comeback. Some of them went into, you know, other uh, groups. So that that was basically um, that happened back five years ago, and uh, it seems like now it's repeating itself, but more so in North America. So the same thing happened here. Um, there's a lot of people here with extremist views started to use social media in general, the, you know, the bigger social media, and then started to grow out of that into using it for not always for good. And then the social networks cracked down and then they, the same people went and splintered into other apps and, and networks and trying to go and do it. So that's in terms of, to address that point, but in terms of just the general behavior of people, um, I think I think it's actually, it, it's been happening for a while. Like it, there is there is a lot of apps. Um, so for example, my wife used a neighborhood app that is a social network just for our own neighborhood. Um, and basically talking about, you know, something, some event happening in the neighborhood or some somebody's car was stolen or someone lost a pet. And so so that's a that's a, you know, a sort of a geographic uh, bound social network that's really limited to our own neighborhood. Um, other apps uh, and I think Facebook is um, I wanted to mention that Facebook has really recognized that a long time ago. And if you notice that if you now post something on Facebook as a brand, nobody will see your post. Huh. Uh, if you post something on Facebook uh, to your friend, uh, only a handful of your friends will see your post. But 
try to post something on a group and then you will see <laughs> you will see it really blows up and uh, that's mostly because facebook has really highly been focusing on groups rather than mm. the normal social media because they think that's where people will go eventually everyone will want to only it's read news about that specific read about that specific topic because you're in that mood you switch into that mood and that's what you're reading and uh funny thing is that's how i also use twitter i actually don't read my feed at all i don't like i don't read my twitter timeline I segment my Twitter into lists. So I have, like, say, for example, a finance list. I have a technology list. I have a COVID list. So when I want to read about something, so I'm like, oh, I'm hearing something about COVID today. Oh, I don't actually even go to the web. I just go to my to my Twitter account. I go into my COVID list because I have a, a list of experts that I've put in it, and I only read the news from them. And it's usually much faster than any other news that you read of. So... So I think I think that's really the future. We'll all whether we, whether it will be different apps that people will go and use, or it could be just within those silos, within those larger social networks themselves, where people will just go and and form groups and try to interact with each other within that group. Because I think um, social media for everyone is least is losing its appeal for for the average person. It's it's becoming too vast, and there's just too much noise. To analyze, um, and I think that's also you know true for for analytics companies is that we're we're trying to help brands to sort of decipher that segment and trying to focus only on subsets of groups as opposed to just social media in general because that's really also not helpful to brands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. So as I mentioned before, we we started like. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a big user of Twitter. Like I have like we have a Twitter account, but uh, we're not that big on it. I, I found myself more drawn to in Instagram. Uh, mostly that's where my friends were, and that's what I got okay. used to. Uh, yeah. As a social network, professionally, LinkedIn, Facebook. Again, uh, just like you mentioned, mostly the groups that I'm in. I'm in my neighborhood yeah. group. I'm in a yeah. few groups. Uh, I love the Facebook Marketplace, but barely yeah. use it as, as a network anymore. But yeah. Twitter. There was a time where I was I got into Twitter again, not for tweeting. I was never big on tweeting, but Twitter as an information source is mm -hmm. so surreal, right? Like, like I, I'm not, I wasn't fear, familiar with the list feature, but now that you say it, I think I'm more, I'm more engaged with it. So back in 2013, 2014, when I was in the innovation space in, in Toronto was so new, there wasn't much information about how to know where, what's happening. Like most social events, most of the uh, meetups, all those kind of things were kind of so spread into so many different like uh, platforms and mediums that you couldn't coalesce it. But Twitter, if you follow the right people, you, you can like it'll like curate almost like this community for you of like information based off of who you follow. So it was very easy for me to suddenly get information about the innovation, the larger innovation industry, just by just following all the all the major people on there, right? And you now suddenly have like the mind like uh, with the mindsets and things they talk about and the and the events they they, they retweet about and stuff. And you suddenly you have have a whole uh, you know thing, uh, like a whole like uh, idea of everything that's going on. So uh, Twitter is really interesting as an education tool, like, you know, like by educating yourself about a certain topic by following people. And I think that that's the main thing that social media has changed in our zygast, right? Is that we've gone from trusting institutions, brands, to trusting people as individuals, yeah. right? People will follow not just a newspaper anymore, but a journalist. People won't just go to want to go to a university anymore. They want a particular professor, right? Yeah. So. 
so this this leverage of uh, of, of giving uh, knowledge and power to the, to the people i think that's that's what's really interesting yeah absolutely i mean um i think twitter um I don't remember. It was five or six years. When you used to go to Twitter, they used to say they used to call themselves "We're a social network." Um, but if uh, I think five or six years ago, they made the change. If you go to Twitter.com, they will tell you, you know, we're 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 a source of real-time news. Where you know, it's actually learn. You will learn what's happening. So it's not really a social network anymore. It's really more about a, a source of news, and that's where they're trying to make the shift. Um, and and you're absolutely right. I think it's it's really it is much faster and more efficient way to learn about what's happening. It will take sometimes several hours for something a news article or an event to be published on a website, and then you don't even know where it is. It's hard to find it. But if you go to Twitter and if you're following the right uh, people, then you will actually see it right there within you know a couple of seconds. And like I said, like I think it's um um. If if you use the Twitter list to uh, to your advantage, you you will actually you you will curate the topics that you really care about, and then you will get you will strip out the noise. So like I mean, why would you um, read about politics if you're only interesting about technology? So if you're only interested in technology, you just go to your technology list and just read what people are saying. There's an Apple event. These are the Apple people expert. These are the Apple expert that you put in that group, mostly because you thought of them, they're expert, and then you want to see what their opinion is, as opposed to listening to a news organization or a company. You you want to hear from these people specifically, and I think that's that's really how I I use Twitter myself. I think it it makes a a night and day, and a lot of people get turned off. And I don't know, unfortunately, I don't know why Twitter doesn't really push that list function. It's it's really long overdue. I think if people see how that is used and 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 notice notice that they might actually tend to stay more on twitter because they you you're basically you're creating your own source of news yourself the way you mm-hmm. like it to hear it as opposed to having a lot of noise coming at you so yeah. um yeah so i mean that's that's a, an interesting way of of looking at the data mhm no uh, i i think uh have you so i want to i want to switch the conversation a little bit more to uh, a little more about like um, the, the 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 plurality, like the back and forth between these networks and humans, right? Like what drives what? Like um, a lot of a lot of the uh, the lead, uh, a lot of the a lot of the programmers, a lot of the the, the knowledge workers yeah, in these networks talk about how they no longer have control of the algorithm. No one person knows what's happening, right? Like the algorithms have been built to like have a mind of its own, and it's enforcing user behavior in the in the in the in the interest of the network, right? You know, now it's become part of our, um, you know, everyday knowledge that like, if you're not paying for a service, you are the, you are the product, yeah. right? They're productizing you. And that's what these social networks are now doing, right? They're, they're trying to suck in your attention, bring you, you know, get you to, uh, you know, uh, involved just so they can sell you ad, you know, one of the main mm-hmm. reasons Facebook is a uh, negative connotation is it's overly yeah. ad, like uh, ad advertising is overly done there, mm-hmm. but um, morphing into like, you know, what these social networks are becoming. Um, have you watched the social network on Netflix? I have yes, yes. The social dilemma, sorry. Yes. The social, social dilemma. dilemma. Yes. Yeah, it's very good. Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. And actually, I, I I I let my teenage daughter watch it with us as well. So I said it's very important for you to learn what these networks are trying to do to you. It's not the, the it's not really a source of news about your friends. It's not what your friends are saying. It's 
it's what the network wants to see and that what the algorithm really wants you to see mm-hmm. and that's um it's a it's a, it's unfortunate i mean i really don't like it one of the things that turned me off from facebook is their algorithm because what when i go to facebook and and i log in i don't really see posts from my friends i see posts from you know mostly acquaintances that either have negative like extreme negative or extreme positive engagement and then they just show up in my feed and i'm like where are my friends and i think my friends are not on facebook but they actually are on facebook and they are posting on facebook i just don't see their posts mostly because mm-hmm. they're posting about their kids or they're posting about their life which doesn't generate you know an extreme negative or positive reaction um and that why you don't see you don't see that so the the you know what started as a social network it really became an you know and a, a feed of algorithms that all they want is monetization and the same thing with twitter you know twitter was unfortunately also used to focus on reverse chronological timeline so whatever people you follow they they you will see on their feed and that has also changed i think 4 or 5 years ago but they gave you the option to turn it off so you can go back and see the real feed and uh, they recently they've redone Twitter again and then now you can turn it off but it, it turns off only for the session so you know if you log in again at, you know if you leave your computer close your browser come back again it's reversed back to their algorithm so they can make more ad money um and I'm and and you know and I'm going to push the list again here uh, the lists don't have an algorithm the list you see it like it goes so that's that's one reason I don't really read my feed it's really an algorithm just like Facebook algorithm it's a it's not really the feed of what i want to read it's a feed of what the algorithm wants me to, to read so i just go on to the list and the same thing with groups uh facebook groups is also was also reverse chronological so it was also showing you r- relevant information but somehow unfortunately that has also i don't remember what it was last year they also switched it to be more algorithm based so you don't see the most recent post first you will see whatever the algorithm decides they want you to see Mm-hmm. um and although that's not um ad driven because i don't believe there is ad still in in facebook groups uh but i think i think it seems like that's where they're going to be heading at some point they want you to be addicted to groups and then they start to push ads and and it loses its its benefit yeah uh, you know it's the saddest thing about like the the ad model uh, once like an like a, a business been addicted to the uh, the ad model it seems like it gets overly consumed by it and leads to a discussion is the mm-hmm. is a destruction because people become overly productized right you're, you're you're bombarded by ads you know especially the ones that follow you you know people talk about the creepiness of yeah. Uh, the social networks where you go through the free screen and almost every ad seems targeted about stuff you've recently talked about yeah right facebook uh, got a lot of slack uh, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok, because you know they have found a way to root to the chip of your phone. So, you know, m- almost all phones now have a voice assistant, and the voice assistant has like a keyword, native keyword search. So it's always it's always on. I was always listening for the keyword to get triggered. So it uh, logs keywords it hears when you're talking. You know, every every time you're talking, your phone's listening. If you have uh, smart home devices, it's listening and it's listening for the keyword search. That's what they say. But they're also logging yeah. keywords. Yeah. And certain certain apps have been able to now to root into that into that file directory that is a root file where those keywords are logged and pull it out and use it now to show you native advertising that's more relevant to things you're talking about. 
So, so people have, you know, seen so much. They talk about something, they go on, a, they open up the social app, and boom, there's an ad for what they just talked about there. And rather being convenient, it's seen as super creepy and invasive, and it's ruining our relationship, our trust vector with our devices. And what I'm really interested in is how we modify this, because these algorithms are really, are really intelligent and are really useful if you think about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I like the idea of it of, of a machine curating things to me based off what I like. But I just don't like it being it listening and creepily and doing it in a in a, in a subversive manner, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like if there's a way for us to share data and like to have like a, have a better control of it, like you know, like this is me my data pool, right? And I'm letting you machine, aka access it. It's a you know it's it's a, it's a it's a give and take. I I give data, you give me intelligence to that data, yeah. right? I think. People are being like, you know, are treated as a product too much. Whereas if we change the relationship just a little bit, right? Change if you, if you flip the relationship, people will be actually more willing to provide even more data, right? If mm-hmm. they're seeing they're given more control over it. And one of the one of the one of the projects that I'm really following is um, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, um, the founder of you know, the HTML, founder of the the modern web, right? Uh, he's actually working on another project based off this. Right, so it, it's a pro, it's a project called Solid. It's open source, just like the web was, right? Okay. Uh, you know, it's coming out of the CERN, the Center for European Research, uh, research, um, and um, basically the whole project is about how do we decouple data from apps, right? Mm-hmm. So the platform goes, it's like it's like a backend, it's a backend system where data can be stored in pods. The pods is owned by the user. And what it does is it, the user is giving permission to the app to use that use that use that uh, use to enter their pod and to access their data. But if they cancel this the app or if they cancel the uh, the you know the usage or stop the app from accessing anymore, the data stays in their pod and their pod is accessible. And once a pod has been established, it can be used for multiple apps. So now the data structure is no longer stored in the the apps that use and collect it. Right, but it's stored in a in a in a in a, in a decentralized manner, but that's owned uh, and controlled by the user. Yeah. So the whole point of this is to decouple, you know, the 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 collector of the data from the, from the owner of the data, aka the user, the person. Yeah. And I really like this idea because one, yes, it gives you more control, more security over over data. But two, I think if we can actually flip the script and like you know give people power over their data. They'll be actually incentivized to give more data into this pool, which makes quality of uh, data available to the algorithms more uh, higher quality. And you know, and if we know anything about this, it's like the the amount of data is what matters, right? Like the the intelligence, the machines, the algorithms can be developed, but they only get better and smarter and stronger and more valuable based off the data sets they have access to. So this movement could actually benefit everybody, machines and the private corporations behind them, as well as end users, individuals. Um, I don't see, you know, Facebook or Instagram or, 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 or Google ever pushing this move because, you know, their data monopoly is what drives their drives their share price. But I, I, I my hope is that the new modern web move forward can move adopt a more adoptive model where it empowers people to, you know, to to safeguard their own data, to take charge of their own data pool, and they the the the, the, the as the as the as the intelligence system are just merely accessing it. Yeah, I hope so too. I think, um, I mean, that's that that's one of the challenges now we have with with you know with apps getting access to our data everywhere. Um, I it's it's funny. I was I was just talking. So I mean, you you probably heard about WhatsApp and all this data sharing, the recent one, and 
Now, a lot of people are jumping off the can bridge. You, can you break that down a little bit? Because Yeah, I, I, so so WhatsApp is, is now, um, uh, they're launching an update. Uh, in the past, when Facebook acquired WhatsApp, um, they, they promised that they will keep them separate. Uh, a few years down the road and, and you know, and $17 billion later, uh, they decided that they're going to actually start sharing the data with Facebook from WhatsApp. So they tell, they tell Facebook information about you, who you talk to, your phone number, your location, and things like that, even though you don't have, um, you know, um, uh, you, did, you never really uh, want to share that data. But they, they offered an opt-out option. So they said, now we're going to share the data. If you don't want to share your data with Facebook, click here to opt out. And the vast majority of people have opted out. Some people have opted in, but a lot of people opted out. And I said, I don't want my my private. I mean, you know, WhatsApp is very private. You usually mm -hmm. use it with your close friends, your family, etc. You don't want to share that information with Facebook. Um, so just in the last couple of weeks, I don't remember exact date, but the face, uh, WhatsApp has made a new update, which is this time around, they says, now we're going to share your data. And if you don't want us to share that data, uninstall the app. So there is no option to opt out of that data sharing anymore. Uh, so Facebook is saying, oh, this was always the case. Yes, this was always the case, but it was before it was an option that you can opt out. Now you don't have that option. And it is unfortunate. So you see a lot of people ha are now jumping ship to different apps. So now there is, you know, people are moving to Telegram. People are moving to Signal. Ironically, Signal, the founder of Signal is also the founder of WhatsApp who sold it to Facebook. But that's another story. <laughs> I didn't um, realize. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, so that's funny. But at least he's he not he or he says now he really cares about privacy and he doesn't want that data to be shared. I, I we don't know. I mean, well, time will tell. Well, but story... yeah. So I mean, there's there's that jump off. So I was having a conversation with a friend of mine last night about well, you know, I mean, it's 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 not really good when, I mean, it there is advantages and disadvantages where everyone is locked in into one platform. Remember when everyone was on Windows back in the day, it was easy to have to build software for one platform. When it became multiple platform, it became more difficult. Now you have to make your app different. So this similar way is now we at the end users, when, you know, when WhatsApp collapses and now you have friends that went to all different apps and then these apps don't talk to each other. Um, so now you, you might have friends on Signal, and then you have friends on Telegram, and then you have friends that still stayed on WhatsApp. So you still have to use WhatsApp if you want to talk to them. So that, I mean, that's one of the challenges. So I was speaking to a friend of mine, and I said, well, you know, I have, um, you know, uh, and I said, well, it's unfortunate. It's just going to splinter, and we're not, would have been nice if all those apps were talking to each other. And, um, and the irony is that if you remember, um, Back in the day, that's why SMPP came around is when, you know, MSN Messenger didn't talk to Yahoo, to AOL Messenger and didn't talk to Yahoo Messenger. So the, the open web developed this MPP messaging platform so that all these apps communicated with each other. Now, all these new mobile apps, WhatsApp and, and, and the rest of them, they use the SMPP, but they actually customize it so they can't talk to each other. So they, used, they took the benefit of open web and they ruined it. So... Mm. I'm hoping that one day that that you know that we go back to the root in SMPP and then you really the apps need to talk to each other. You don't really need to have an the same app to talk to your friends. You you could you could you could pick the app of your choice and talk to your friend. So that's one thing. And then he mentioned 
oh, there is, uh, you know, a common friend that we have, and uh, his name is John Evans. He is a Toronto guy, um, and he's a software developer, and he's now building a platform that's similar to what you mentioned earlier. Um, it's it's um, it's sort of a GitHub repository of your data, and and in a similar way that you keep your data and that and on GitHub, and then the apps can connect to your database, and then you you own it. You tell the app what what it can have access to and what it cannot. Hmm. And and you're right. I don't think Facebook or because I mean that's the death of Facebook. The main reason why we are on Facebook, and I've been saying I'm leaving Facebook for the last 10 years. <laughs> I can't because all our all my friends are there, all our photos are there, our data is with Facebook. Mm -hmm. If I if I step out of it, I lose all that data that I have and all those connections that I have with with my friends that are really living with Facebook. And there is no way for me to get to that. Now, um, back to your privacy question. Um, I am actually, um, you know, being a developer myself, you know, like I think people that make sausage, they don't probably don't eat sausage because <laughs> yeah. they know what goes in the sausage making. So I don't have like I don't have the Facebook. I've never had the Facebook app installed for on my phone for the last I don't know maybe ten years. I've removed it completely once I saw what it actually does, because it really takes a lot more data than you think. It's not mm. only taking the data that you're you're putting into the app. It's taking all the other situational data from all the other things you do with your phone and stealing it. So that's that's a big deal for me. So that's why I haven't had Facebook app installed. I only use it in a browser, and uh, and and even when I browse, when I go to Google, I don't Google anything. Like I use Google as my main search engine, but I always use Google in incognito mode. Mm -hmm. And well, not not Chrome incognito. I use Firefox incognito mm -hmm. because it really everything you do. I search. You know, sometimes I want to search. Um, you know. A gift for my wife, and then if if I search in the wrong place and it keeps following me everywhere, and then you know my wife suddenly sees it when I'm browsing the internet and sees like oh I actually <laughs> what is that thing I want that thing I'm like mm -hmm. oh you just ruined the surprise like why yeah. would you put this out of that thing everywhere I go so I use yes I use um, incognito quite a bit and then now um, I just discovered recently um, Firefox has something called uh, containers. So yeah. you can put different apps and different websites in different containers. And then that way, you know, Facebook has its own container. I'm not mixing Facebook with anything. It's just Facebook. Yeah, that's they can't, the they can't see what, what else you're doing in different containers. Yeah, it doesn't know what else I do. I mean, I'm pretty sure they track you by IP, et cetera. But at least, <laughs> at least they, will not, they will not differentiate at least you whether slow them down. My, my children <laughs> or my wife or who else, right? They, they don't really follow you that much. So Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, that's that's really interesting. Uh, I think the the main touch point you made there is like the collective efforts now that we have to do now to protect ourselves and and minimize our exposure. Um, I actually did a a detox, a data detox in uh, in October. So I did uh, okay. uh, wow. Joe Rogan's sober October challenge. So no okay. alcohol, uh, you know, uh, uh, no alcohol, no uh, vices, um, exercise very frequently. But also added into there uh, a social media detox. So I actually quit okay. all the social apps for the whole wow. month, um, the exception being LinkedIn because that's a professional network, and even then I minimized it. But I deleted when I, I deleted the social media apps. First time I ever deleted them, right? I never I, like you know, it's not another log out, but it's the first time I deleted the app, and immediately 
um, Instagram, which I never got messages from, started emailing me saying, mm -hmm. hey, this friend messaged you, you know, these six friends messaged you, uh, yeah. you know, reply back here. And, uh, you know, I know those friends, so I reach out to them and they're like, yeah, we haven't messaged you. All right. Yeah. Wow. And it was it's such a powerful feeling, right, that this, uh, this idea of a notification waiting for that, like there's an update for, for you and, and you're like itching yeah. for it. And yeah. I'm like, yo, this is weird. And uh, I fought through it. And it's just like any kind of detox, right? Like you, you have to go through a period of like uh, missing it, weaning yourself off it, and then suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. And then when I came back to, you know, in November, I realized I have no implementation, but I added the apps eventually back into my system. And I was using it, and I still use it a much less frequency than I did before. Because now I have a period in my life where I didn't use it. I'm like, oh, it's okay, you know? And the yeah. time consumption that I had, the free time went, went up. But what I what I didn't like was this uh, the the dark UI element of it, right? That's what they call it. So the Facebook, uh, you know, started this idea of like, um, you know, you have you have the regular UI, which is called a light UI, right? Which is enhancing user behavior, you know, giving you a pleasant user experience, right? All these like positive side things to bring people in. But what these social networks have, especially Facebook, has coined is dark UI, things that prevents you from leaving the experience. Things that prevent you from doing a particular thing, like deleting their apps, right? Yeah. So start triggering you, you know, a whole sequence of events triggers when you try to delete or try to leave the application. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and start right from the beginning. So um, uh, Chamath, uh, uh, Chamath Patipale, was um, now the founder of Social Capital, crushing yeah. it. He he was the one who invented, invented and started the growth team at Facebook. So Facebook, back in the day, I think 2008, it was stuck at 60 million users and it couldn't grow. And they went to Chamath and asked him to set up a team specialized on how do we grow this? Like, how do we get more people? Like, we're seen to be hit this, uh, hit this, hit this, uh, uh, like, um, uh, ceiling, this plateau, and we can't seem to grow from here. And uh, Chamath, uh, you know, set up all these people. And what they, what he, him and his team did was set up dark UI, sorry, dark profiles. So before yeah. you, let's say, uh, you know, you and me, I'm on Facebook, but you're not, right? It would, preemptively create a profile on you. It'll scrape the web, find information about you, you know, and then use that to find friends that you might be connected with through some other means. And then preemptively say, create a Facebook profile and have friends already lined up because they realize if someone new comes to the network, um, the reason they had to hit the plateau is a lot of the people who are coming in don't have anybody that's in Facebook to connect to, yeah. right? Or don't know which one to connect to. So yeah. if it, they preload it up, hey, connect to this person based off your interests, based off of things, yeah. right? They're more likely to stay. So within the first six minutes, six seconds, if they can show that factor, they stay, they stick on. And they stick on for a very long time. And yeah. that is what drove Facebook to the next level, right? Um, the ability to bring in people who are not, who already don't have a connection within Facebook. And these kind of principles, this level of thinking, you know, some of the smartest people in the world, Scott Galloway talks about this, right? The Manhattan Project had 350,000 of the top minds working on you know, working within this closet city to create like the greatest uh, bomb, greatest technology at that at that time. Modern times now, we have 750,000 of our top minds, top engineers, top scientists, top researchers working within four technology firms, right? Yeah. Facebook, Apple, Google, yeah. and Microsoft, yeah. right? And now Amazon, right? Yeah. So uh, if 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 uh, if all these minds are now thinking about, okay, how to productize you, the end consumer, how to sell you better, more and more things, how to yeah. hack into your, into your, you know, they call it uh, Tristan Harris, uh, the guy who wrote uh, the social uh, dilemma. He talks about the, it talks about the race, the bottom of the brainstem. 
know, how do we, uh, like, you know, from a top down, from an emotional standpoint, how do we, how do you grab your attention? How do we drive user behavior? Right. And this is what the top of mind are doing. The, you know, like no longer are the top researchers in universities anymore doing academic research. They're doing user behavior studies for these top firms and, and how to hack into your, into your subconscious, how to, how to sell you things better. And I think that is the tragedy of our modern age, right? Our intelligence uh, our uh, factors are all focused towards productizing the consumer, mm-hmm. right? And I think I think the real the real factor now is how to switch a slip. Like, is it do we follow fall into a strategy where you know it's a paid per reuse social medias where you, people pay upfront for a premium experience? Do we you know f- you know change the way we interact with data and prove a model where people are because they own the data structure that they are willing to give more data, therefore the, the algorithms can work better in there, right? How do we evolve from there? Do you have any thoughts to this? Yeah, I think I think it's more of the latter. I I I, I will I find it very difficult at least for for our generation where people will go and pay to get access to social network. I don't think that's going to happen mostly because social network you need to have a significant mass and a big percentage of people will not pay for a product like that. Mm. Um, but I think it's more of the latter uh, choice that you said. I think it's where we take control of our data and then it, it will be a positive use of the data. I mean, yes, I mean, social network are, you know, are, are just pushing ads and monetization, but it should be more of if you're looking for something, I mean, if you're looking for a product and you find it, that's not really a negative thing. It's a positive thing. You found something that you were looking for. So if you're seeking that information and that information is useful, I think the user should be empowered to do that. And the same thing for a brand. And that's also where we at Map I, I find actually where we come in handy is like if you're if you're trying to instead of bombarding everyone with an ad about your product, why don't you find the people who really need your product and want your product and then show it to them, advertise mm-hmm. to that group. So that way you have a higher in conversion. And then the receiving end is also, they don't despise that. They actually are looking for what you're, or, or ha- have a high likelihood of looking for the, the thing that you do. Uh, sort of similar to how Google versus, Google ads versus Facebook ad. I mean, when you're when you're looking for something, um, let's say you're searching for a, a, a software tool and when Google shows at the top the ads that are relevant to your search, yes, it is ads, it is intrusive, but it's also relevant to your search experience. You are really looking for that thing and then they are made, offering suggestions that might be, might help sway your, your opinion to go to that. So that, that result, although they're ads, they're actually useful. But when you're on Facebook and you're uh, talking to your friends and all of a sudden you see an ad of a blender or an ad of a car, uh, I wasn't searching for a car. I wasn't searching for, you know, buy a house. I'm talking to my friends. Mm. (laughs) So that's really is more of pushing something to you when you don't really want it. So I think at some point that that model is going to have to change and, and go into more is what do people want? And that's that's when you actually come in and then you as a brand, as a business, that's the point when you want to reach out to these people that are really more relevant to what you're trying to say, not just bombard people with ads, not just force people to be addicted to networks so they can they can click and click and continue to see more ads. It's more of show me the ads that I care about. I would be happy to see ads that I care about. Don't show me about things I don't care about. Definitely. Perfect. Um, 
Okay. Uh, we have spent an hour talking about this. I think yeah. this has been this has That's been awesome. a, this has been an interesting episode. I, I really enjoyed uh, having you on. Uh, I really wanted to uh, you know have someone to really dive into the nuances of, of social media and the influences it has in our on our society. Um, I really like the you know the knowledge you bring. Um, kudos to what you're doing with your analytics engine. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thank you for your time. Same here. I enjoyed the conversation, and and time actually did fly by. So that was a very nice, you know, engaging conversation with you. Definitely. All right. Thanks everyone who watched, and until uh, next time.